0: I wanted to remind you, and for those of you, we have a lot of new folks in our church here lately. What we're doing this year, our whole ministry theme is all in. We are challenging ourselves to chase after Christ, to pursue Him, to pursue spiritual growth in Him like never before. And that means four specific things. We're reading through the entire Bible this year. We're, uh, we're praying for the lost. All the, all the lost people, Christ has brought into our lives. The Holy Spirit has brought into our orbit. We're engaging in missions outside the church walls, and we're committing to greater generosity. And you'll have to look a little harder for it since the atrium is a jungle, right? But there is a table out there. I think it's when you turn right uh, toward Harrington Hall, the table says all in, and there are sheets on all four of those, including a Bible reading plan. My advice to you In fact, my urging to you, if you haven't started yet, is pick up all four of those sheets. And don't start from the beginning of the Bible plan. Start with today's date. Read along with us. It'll be a lot easier to stick with it if you're reading along with a whole group of people. If you've started and stopped, time to jump back on the horse. This is is about glorifying God and growing in Him. And by the way, speaking of engaging in missions, two weeks from today, you're going to hear about a great opportunity that we'll have coming up in the fall for you to do just that. So turn with me to John chapter 12, 42 through 43. We're also going to look at Galatians 1, 10. Uh, If you don't have that scripture memorized, if you didn't catch it, it's on the back side of your bulletin. In fact, today, even if you're not a note taker, I'm going to ask you to, to have that note section open because there's something I want us to do together there, okay? So be ready, have something to write with. In 1984, Sally Field won the Academy Award for Best Actress for the movie Places in the Heart. Now, I don't know if you've seen it or not. If you haven't, you probably think that doesn't sound very good. Uh, It sounds like one of those gas station romance novels. But I will tell you, it's one of my favorite movies. So if you haven't seen Places in the Heart, look it up, stream it. It is well worth your time. But on the day she won the award, Sally Field, it was the second time she had won, she stood before her peers and gave one of the famous lines in Hollywood history. In her acceptance speech, she said, I haven't had an orthodox career, and I've wanted more than anything to have your respect. The first time I didn't feel it, but this time I feel it. And I can't deny the fact that you like me. Right now, you like me. She wasn't talking to us. She wasn't talking to the audience. She was talking to her peers, her fellow actors. And what she was saying was, I know I'm not Meryl Streep. I know I have a reputation as sort of a lightweight in the acting department. You see me, and you see Gidget, and you see The Flying Nun, and you see, you know, Burt Riddle's girlfriend in those Smokey and the Bandit movies. Not exactly been her, you know. And so I, I, I wanted to be respected by you. I wanted to be taken seriously. I wanted to be accepted. And now that you've given me this award a second time, now I feel it. Now I feel like I'm one of you. Now I feel like I belong. And people make fun of that speech. Comedians will misquote it and they'll say, you like me, you really, really like me. You've heard that, right? But she's just, she's just expressing what I think most of us really feel. Because it's my contention that for most of us, the approval of others is incredibly important. In a recent study, the, the researchers took ordinary people and put them into MRI machines while they read them letters from important people in their lives, friends, coworkers, family members, in which the letters said things that were admiring and adoring and encouraging to the people who were sitting in the MRIs. And what they did is they, they studied the brains of the subjects while they heard these wonderful things being said about them. And what they discovered was that according to our brain activity, what we experience when people praise us is the same kind of intense pleasure that we would experience when we eat a bowl of our favorite ice cream. The approval of others is incredibly gratifying. And on the flip side, to have that taken away, to have that denied, to have that rejected, can feel like death. And that's not a 21st century thing, okay? Don't blame millennials. This is something that has always existed in humanity. We're starting in John chapter 12. We're not going to spend long there. I don't usually do this, but we're going to look at multiple scriptures instead of focusing on one. John 12, 41 and 42, or 42 and 43 Just after Jesus has come into Jerusalem, the last week of his life, the religious leaders who have been opposing him from the very beginning. Next week, we're going to talk about the idolatry of religion. We're going to look at these religious leaders in greater detail. But right now, just know they have been opposed to Jesus from the start. And right here, John gives us an insight. He says something very surprising about them. He says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put, to, put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That is an astonishing statement. What it's saying is that there were many of the people who were publicly criticizing Jesus, calling for his arrest, calling for his death, who secretly believed that he probably really was the Messiah, probably really was the Son of God. Definitely there was something about him that was different. But because of their desire to be approved of by their peers, because of their fear that they might lose esteem in the sight of people that were important to them, they refused to follow Jesus. In other words, the idolatry of approval kept them from the kingdom of God. The idolatry of approval kept them from salvation. That's how terrible this idolatry is. In our, in our series, we're talking about all kinds of idolatries. We've talked about family. We've talked about comfort. We've talked about wealth, romantic love. We've talked about power. And how all these things are really good things. But if they become ultimate things, if we look to these things to do for us what only God can do, to give us joy, to give us identity, to give us security and peace, then they can become destructive. They can become poison. They can become our enemies. And today we're going to talk about the idolatry of approval, which I think may be the most, most widespread in our culture today. It's certainly the one uh, many of us struggle with more than any other. And, and, and when we talk about the idolatry of approval, that's, this is what we call a deep idol. We talked about this last week. Power is like this. Power is a deep idol where you see it happen in people's lives in various different ways. The same with the idolatry of approval. There are basically two ways we experience the the idolatry of approval. On the one hand, some people really love attention and applause. They like to be the center of attention. And they don't like it when someone else is. On the other hand, most people, I would say don't like being in the spotlight. They're embarrassed by that, but they suffer from a different kind of idolatry of approval. And that is the one where the people who are most important to me need to like me, need to be happy with me, need to be on good terms with me. Otherwise I can't be happy. I can't be satisfied. I can't go on living. And so their statement would be, I only, my life only has meaning and I only have worth if this person loves and respects me. And that could be That could be a romantic partner, that could be uh, uh, your parents, it could be your friends, it could be your peers at work, it could be your boss, it could be the cool kids at school, it could be a social group that you hope to break into. You gauge yourself, you measure yourself based on how this person or this group views you. It could be your children, it could be your family. And and some of us lucky souls suffer from both forms. I'll just testify and, and I know. If you really need a pastor who has it all together, I'm sorry. I'm just not there. But I'm going to confess to you that out of all the idolatries we've talked about on this list, this is the one that I struggle with the most. This is the one I pray against every day, every single day of my life. When I was in fourth grade, my teacher, Mrs. Nelson, gave me a poem to read at an academic contest that we were having at our school. So kids from schools all over our region came and and we... Competed in math and science and, and, uh, and writing and my, my subject, oral reading. And, and so I read this poem by Ogden Nash. And, and then later on, everybody gathered in the school assembly hall as they announced the awards. And when they came to oral reading and they announced first place, they said, Jeff Berger from Yokum And the whole school went up in applause. All of, my, all of my classmates just erupted. And man, that felt good. And I have to tell you, it's it's... Just about 40 years later. And every Sunday I have to pray basically the same prayer. Lord, search my heart. So whatever there is in me. I know there's stuff in there. I know. But whatever there is in me. That is, that is just desiring to, to gain the applause of people. To gain the approval of those who will hear me. To make them think I'm a good preacher. Or that I'm a good person. Take that all away. Help me only. To care about serving you and being faithful to your word and and loving the people enough to show them the truth. On the other hand, I also suffer from the introvert's version of approval idolatry because I want to keep everybody happy all the time. I want everybody to like me, I want everybody to think I'm great, and that is no way to live. Do you realize if Jesus had lived that way, we'd all, all still be lost? Jesus would have quit the first time he was criticized. I find it interesting that two separate times God the Father spoke audibly from heaven to Jesus, God the Son, in the hearing of other human beings. Both times he said essentially the same thing Behold, this is my Son who I love. Listen to him. It was as if God the Father was saying to everybody else, You may not like him, and that's okay, because I love him, and that's going to be enough for him. And it was. And I'm not there yet, but I want to be. How about you? So that's what we're going to talk about today. So here's what I want you to do. We're going to talk about some symptoms of approval addiction. We're going to go through these really quickly, so you need to pay attention. And what I want you to do is when you hear a symptom that sounds like something you suffer from or that describes you or may describe you, I want you to write it down. Okay, we're going to go quickly, so pay attention. And and listen, this is like when you're on WebMD and you're looking up the symptoms of, I don't know, stomach ulcer or high blood pressure or athlete's foot. You won't have all of these, but if you have one or two of them, then it's something you need to attend to, right? So write these down. We're going to do something with this later, okay? All right? If you don't write it down, I won't approve of you, okay? That's not good. All right, okay, so here we go. Symptoms of approval addiction. Number one, I can't say no. I end up overcommitted. I end up stressed out because I just don't want to disappoint anyone. Number two, I am afraid to risk failure or embarrassment. And this is why so many of us are terrified to get up and speak in public. We would never get up and give our testimony. Or or this is why so many of us are, are, are afraid to share our faith. Why we never volunteer to try any new kind of ministry or do anything new for God. We just... It, the, the thought of failing, the thought of looking foolish in the eyes of others is just petrifying to us and it keeps us from doing the will of God. Number three, I am two-faced. Now I don't know anybody who would admit that publicly, but I think many of us, if if you'd pinned us down and put a gun to our head, we'd say, yeah, there's plenty of times when I say things about people behind their back that I'd never say to their face. But I say those things behind their back because it makes me look good in the eyes of others, because it makes me look good to compare myself favorably to somebody else. Number four, it bothers me to have people angry with me. Keeps me up at night. It disturbs me. It keeps me from doing God's will because I'm so, so fixated on the idea of not making this person mad or offending that person. Number five, criticism sticks with me. I get defensive or angry when someone points out things I need to improve. And sometimes those things are valid and sometimes those things could really help me grow. But instead, I'm too busy fighting back because how dare you criticize me. After all, I could criticize you for all kinds of stuff. You ever heard that saying, you can receive a hundred compliments and one criticism and you'll dwell on the one criticism. You've heard that, right? That's approval addiction at work. Number six, I get overly concerned with appearance. I dress to be noticed. Now, the stereotype says this is more of a female problem than a male. I don't know if that's true or not. I did hear a woman this week, a Christian woman, say something that I found very interesting. She said, the stereotype is that women dress to impress men, and the truth is we don't. We dress for other women. We we're thinking as we're getting dressed in the morning, what are the ladies in my office? What are the ladies at church? What are the ladies in my social circle going to say about me when I walk out of the room? Are they going to say, can you believe what she was wearing? Can you believe that dress? Can you believe that hair? And that's a lot of pressure to carry around. That's a lot of stress over approval addiction. Number seven, I get resentful when someone else is praised, when their idea gets noticed, when their joke gets laughed at. I feel a little hurt inside that they didn't laugh at my joke that way, that they didn't like my idea that much. Number eight, I avoid tough conversations. We are called to speak the truth in love to people, to call out sin, to confront people, lovingly and so few of us ever do because we know that awkwardness will be the result and we may lose a friendship here or we may experience some some time of 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 anger from that friend for a while we miss the opportunity to to do the will of God because of approval addiction finally number nine I often say I don't care what others think of me you see there are some of you that haven't written anything down And you're thinking to yourself, I can't wait to talk to the preacher afterwards and say, well, preacher, you weren't talking to me because I'm not one of those people. I don't care what anybody thinks of me. My question to you is, why do you want me to know that? (laughs) Why is it so important to you that people know how tough and how bold and how strong you are? That's image management. That's another form of approval addiction. You see how insidious this is? So, the religious leaders of Israel missed Jesus in part because they loved the approval of men more than the favor of God. And there was a young man who studied under those men. His name was Saul of Tarsus. And he loved those men. He yearned for their approval. Nothing was more important to Paul. Than being known among his teachers, his rabbis, his scribes, and fellow Pharisees as the most zealous man of God in all of Israel. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a proud member of the tribe of Benjamin. And in order to prove he was better than all the rest, he went even further than anybody else was willing to go. He became zealous enough to shed blood for the glory of God. To him, that meant anybody who proclaimed that crucified Nazarene as Messiah had to die. And he would be the one to take their lives. And then it all changed. And then he became a believer in that same Messiah. And when that happened, Paul's desire for the approval of human beings vanished. I don't know if it was quickly or over time. I do know this. The first time Paul ever preached the gospel to his own people, the only time ever preached it at all, was in Damascus to his fellow Jews, and they tried to kill him. The very people who had called him a hero now tried to take his life. And then from there, he went to Jerusalem to meet with the original 12 disciples, the men who had walked with Jesus. And they rejected him, thinking he was a phony. I know that for the rest of Paul's life, by his own testimony and the testimony of Luke in the book of Acts, that Paul experienced everything from gossip behind his back to lynch mobs trying to kill him and almost succeeding. And he never turned back. And he never expressed any self-pity because the approval of people just didn't matter to him anymore, as long as he could glorify God. Galatians 1.10, Paul is writing to a group of people, a group of churches, in fact, in the region of Galatia, a group of people who had criticized him behind his back. Essentially, they'd said, okay, Paul came and preached the gospel to us, but do we really need to accept Paul's teaching? After all, is he really a legitimate apostle? He didn't walk with Jesus like the original 12 did. He's not like Peter and and, and James and John and Bartholomew and Philip. He, he He didn't actually dwell with Jesus. He just had a brief encounter with him. So maybe he's not a full apostle. And Paul has to write to them to say, my gospel is legitimate because I got it from Jesus himself. And in order to do that, he has to give his testimony. He has to defend himself. But first, he writes these words in Galatians 1.10. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So what he's saying in context is, listen, I'm about to defend myself and my apostleship. Because I want you to believe the gospel that I preach to you and not accept this new teaching you're hearing from others. But it's not because I need for you to like me. It's not because I need for you to respect me or need for you to approve of me. I frankly don't care. Burn me in effigy if you want, as long as you believe my gospel. Now that's what he's saying in context. But to us, what he's saying is, you've got a choice. You can't serve Christ And seek the approval of others. If you're seeking the approval of others, you're not serving Christ. And that is a tough choice to make. We know what's right. But we sure do want to do both, don't we? On the other hand, this does not mean that a true Christian, a true disciple of Jesus, is going to be an unfeeling, callous, jerk... Because, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians nine nineteen through 22, the feelings of others matter. This is his philosophy of ministry. You've heard this one before. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not, having, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So what Paul says in that passage is, I tailor my approach depending on the person I'm talking to. I appeal to them at their level. I am willing to do whatever I have to do to relate to that person. Anything short of sinning against God, I will do if it helps them to see Jesus in me. What Paul is saying when you combine those two passages, Galatians 1.10 and 1 Corinthians 9.19-22 9, is, I don't care what you think about me, but nothing matters more to me than what you think about Jesus because of me. I care how you think. I care what you feel. I care what you see in me as, as far as it relates to the way you see Jesus. As far as it relates to how I represent him. Other than that, you can think I'm ugly, you can think I'm dumb, you can think I'm a bad preacher, you can think anything you want about me, as long as in me you see Jesus. And that's where I want to be. And that's where we need to be. So let's go back and look at those symptoms of approval addiction that you wrote down on your bulletin. What do you wish they said? What do you wish you could write there instead of what you wrote? What I, want to do, what I want you to do, I want to give you a minute, literally 60 seconds, to write down what you wish those sentences said. So let me give you some examples. I know I can't please everyone all the time, and I'm fine with that because I constantly see evidence I'm influencing people toward Jesus. I tell people the truth in a loving way, even if it's not what they want to hear. I try to look my best, but I spend way more time improving my character than my appearance. When people are angry with me, I do everything I can to be reconciled. If they refuse, I rest in the knowledge that my Father accepts me. When I am criticized, I'm thankful for the chance to learn and grow. When the criticism is inaccurate or unfair, I rejoice. That's how people treated my Lord after all. When someone else is in the spotlight, I am genuinely happy for them. When the spotlight turns to me, my top priority is to represent Christ well. I have nothing to hide, nothing to be ashamed of. I never pretend to be anything that I am not. I love who I am in Christ. Now let me just say, I've known a handful of people in my life who gave no evidence at all that they suffered from approval addiction. Just a handful. I could name them and it would take less than my hand. But most of us do. So if you're one of those lucky few, your addiction is something else. (laughs) Seriously. But if you're like the rest of us, you've got some work to do here. How do we get from where we are to where we want to be? There's only one way. There is literally only one way. And that's the same way Paul's life changed. Paul didn't change because suddenly he started believing a set of different doctrines. Paul's life didn't change because he accepted a different religion. Paul's life changed because he had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ. And that's it. One moment, Paul's life's goal was to be approved of by the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees. The next moment, he still loved those men, but he didn't care what they thought of him. The next moment, all he cared about was standing before Jesus and being approved and saying, I've, did, I've done everything I could for you, Lord. By grace, I am saved. But once I received that grace, I did everything I could to glorify and honor you. So all we can do, what we must do is take that bulletin home and pray over it. In fact, in just a moment, when we, when we sing our invitation, it would be just fine with me if it's just me and Robert singing and the rest of you just... Doing business with the Lord and praying over these things you've listed. So let me just close with, uh, with an embarrassing story. So when I was a senior in high school, last week of my senior year, literally it may have been the last day of school. I don't remember. I know it was within days. I know my finals were over and I had nothing to do. And so a friend of mine and I were standing in the hallway... In the middle of class, standing in the hallway, just talking, shooting the breeze. My friend's name was Chris. Some of you have heard me talk about Chris before. Chris was the coolest guy I've ever known to this day. Um, He was tall. He was athletic. He was good looking. I mean, he was a guy. he He had swagger. When he walked into a room, the eyes of every female of any age were on him. I wanted to be Chris when I grew up. And we're standing in the hallway talking and laughing. And a girl walks by. Y'all, this is really embarrassing. Y'all have to keep this between us, okay? So a girl walks by who I had briefly dated that year. And she said something smart to me and then went into the girl's bathroom, which was right across the hall from where we were standing. And Chris looks at me with a big smile and says, "Burger, are you gonna take that? And I said, no, I'm not. And I walked up to the girl's bathroom door and I flung it open. And I said, hey... And she's standing there at the mirror, looking in the mirror, and she turns to me with this expression on her face that says, what are you doing here? And I gave her an expression that said, I don't know what I'm doing here. And I turned, and I walked out, and walked right into a female teacher. At this point, Chris is on, his, on the ground laughing. And, and she says, okay, come with me. And she takes me to the principal's office. Now, what you need to know is that I was not familiar with the principal's office. I was, I was one of those good kids. I was one of those kids. I did not push the boundaries. I did, not, I did not pride myself on being the rebel. I was the guy who loved gaining the approval of all my teachers and all the adults in my life. And so to sit in the principal's office as this teacher said about, talked about this idiotic thing I had just done was like torture now my my principal's name was mr manning as a high school student he had led our hometown team to the state championship game literally the last time our team went that far until two years ago and as a as an adult he had been my dad's varsity football coach he was a legend in our town, and I'm sitting there, and I'm you know the beads of sweat are forming, um, my heart is pounding, my mouth is dry, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm dead. This is it. I, I I'm not going to get to walk, right? Saturday, all the class of 88 is going to be up there in their cap and gown. And my parents and grandparents are going to be wondering, why is Jeff not up there? And I'll have to tell them the story because I can't make up one. It won't work. And and, and maybe I'll have to come back and do summer school. Heck, maybe they'll make me redo my whole senior year. I mean, wouldn't be unheard of. I was dead. I was just killed. And the teacher finished explaining what I'd done. And without even looking at me, she turned and left. The door closed. And there was a moment of silence, and Mr. Manning looked at me, very slowly, this big smile, I think you've learned from this, haven't you? (laughs) I said, yes, sir, I certainly have. And he said, let's just say, let's just call it even between you and me. You can go. And I, I realized at that moment that I'd been given this incredible grace that I did not deserve, that I might never receive again. And it makes me think about a day, someday, when you and I will stand before a far greater authority than any high school principal, and we'll give an accounting for our lives. The Bible says that. And I believe at that moment, even those of us who are saved by grace, even, in, even those of us who, who know our eternal destiny is, is in Christ and we're okay, even though that's true, we will experience regret at that moment. And we'll think back over the course of our lives, standing in the presence of that kind of holiness, In the presence of the one who laid down his life for us, we will think about all those times we did stupid things and cruel things and ridiculous things just to impress other people, just to enhance our standing in the eyes of others. And we'll wish we could redo it, but we'll also know that we're receiving the greatest grace that's ever been given for one reason and one reason only, because that judge who sits before us became a human being who was rejected so we could be accepted, who was despised so we could be loved eternally, who died so we could live forever. And that, and that only is the grace that can break the approval addiction forever.